the pandemic is moving through and especially the Southern Hemisphere is in the thick of their winter season. And for example, uh, countries like Chile are uh, very much in the grips of significant amounts of COVID-19 cases. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the July 8th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are discuss the current trends in new cases and deaths of COVID-19, describe data from the recently published report of hydroxychloroquine, and discuss the current status of vaccine development. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters and are free of influence from Pfizer Incorporated. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. So some milestones continue to be set. The United States is nearing 3 million cases, which are confirmed. Of course, uh, there are likely many more that have gone unconfirmed. But if you look at the left side of this slide, you get a sense for the leading countries that still, although it's cumulative cases, really still are pouring cases on, and that's the United States, Brazil, India and Russia, United States has been adding approximately 50,000 new confirmed cases a year. And unfortunately, as you look at the bottom right-hand part of this slide, the uh, gold-yellow line continues an upward streak of uh, continued confirmed cases that at least the rate uh, has not yet uh, declined. In fact, you can even see a slight rise towards acceleration. So the pandemic is moving through and especially the Southern Hemisphere is in the thick of their winter season. And for example, uh, countries like Chile are uh, very much in the grips of significant amounts of COVID-19 cases. In the United States, uh, what's been happening is, I think everyone knows, is the southern states and Southern California have had increasing rates. Uh, we've discussed this on the program uh, previously. What's a little different, though, I think, is hospitals and nursing homes and so on at least had lead time 
unlike the first part of the epidemic that hit the coasts in early uh, March and April. So that's spared, and we're seeing a younger people predominantly. Uh, many states, such as Arizona, Texas, and Florida, a significant numbers of 20 to 45-year-olds are comprising many of these new cases, and of course, may not be quite as prone to severe illness, hospitalization, or death. Uh, overall, death rates are uh, still declining in most states. This is very encouraging, but uh, at the same time, caution abounds because people are still being hospitalized. For example, in the state of Florida uh, today, over 50 hospital systems have maxed out their intensive care units, and uh, death rates tend to lag by weeks uh, because many people uh, with supportive care do survive for quite a while, but eventually succumb. So unfortunately, I think the downward trend won't continue. And this really just speaks to the ongoing pandemic uh, that really, uh, unfortunately, we don't have quite the organizational capacity to stem. Uh, moving on to clinical updates, one aspect that we saw quite a lot of in May were patients who had COVID-19 disease in March and April and then came back to hospital with fevers and also infiltrates on uh, radiographs. And some of them were quite ill, others not so. And yet exhaustive workups uh, did not uncover a cause. And we tried to postulate if this was some kind of paradoxical immune reaction that was delayed afterwards. And the, the French group looked uh, with a bit of an earlier start than, uh, for example, the United States at 11 uh, patients that returned uh, with symptoms and evidence of lung disease after a symptom-free interval um, for at least 21 days after their initial confirmation. So this group, although small, uh, was looked at for some insights on what's going on, meaning is it a new infection? Is it a recurrence? Is it a reactivation? Is it a re-exposure and reacquisition? So if you look at these patients, uh, most of them did not have quick and mild disease. They had symptoms for 18 days with the range you see there. Most had evidence on chest imaging, and one even had a pulmonary embolus, but there was no evidence of so-called secondary infections such as bacteria or fungi. And when you looked at their antibody status, interestingly, not everyone did they have values, uh, but three were negative and one had uh, borderline low values. Viral culture would be fabulous, but of course, it's hard to do because you need a biosafety level three laboratory. They only did this for two patients, but one did yield culture quite late in this case, which speaks to at least reacquisition or, or failure to eradicate and control the virus. So from this group, they, they put them into two groups and they thought one might have been reinfected. They were younger, healthier had mild disease and perhaps like other reports, didn't really mount robust antibody responses. Perhaps they've been re-exposed and reinfected or, or at least getting the virus again, much as we know with influenza, where people can have minimal symptoms and shed the virus anew. Uh, another would be a recurrence group, and this was a group that was more severely ill, often with comorbidities. This group also didn't do as well in the second round. Three cases were fatal. They were wondering if it was because of insufficient control of infection and, and raised a bit of a question mark about 
whether receiving steroids or uh, two other patients receive chemotherapy or rituximab. The other possibility is just an inflammatory rebound. So although a limited study, I, I sort of view this as three possibilities. We're all looking at this. And, and indeed, I think this deserves some careful observation as probably there'll be uh, more use of dexamethasone based on the recovery trial uh, in patients that are critically ill on mechanical ventilation in ICUs. Now, uh, moving to therapeutics and prevention, a couple of thoughts. One paper was published last week and made uh, a bit of uh, news coverage, and also President Trump has mentioned that it may vindicate his particular view that hydroxychloroquine plus or minus azithromycin uh, is beneficial for treating COVID-19. So I really applaud these authors for trying to organize these kind of data early on in the pandemic. This was done in Michigan in the Henry Ford uh, Health System, and they put together over 2,500 patients, most of whom, as you can see here, got hydroxychloroquine in some formulation, but divided these patients into four groups and then looked back at mortality. And the highest rate were in patients that got no drug at 26.4%. Uh, patients that got hydroxychloroquine alone did best, but there was also some sense that patients that got the combination also improved, although uh, at somewhat lower numbers. There are many caveats here, although the authors concluded that there is evidence of reduced mortality, they certainly then said it needs prospective study. Uh, this is a retrospective and observational source of data, so it's always very hard to make any judgments regarding treatment because of uh, biases. Uh, for example, in the group that got neither uh, medication. More patients were over 65 and therefore more prone to be in the very high risk for mortality group versus less than half in other groups. There is no insights as to why patients in the neither group did not get medication. Although they uh, didn't die within 24 hours, was drug withheld for other reasons, uh, cardiovascular disease, toxicities, we don't know. And then um, there is really uh, no attempt to uh, ad make adjustments in these kind of retrospective studies to uh, adjust for confounding factors such as fragility, uh, disease severity, uh, DNR status, or many patients also receive corticosteroids. So a study which I think uh, begs for prospective study. However, those have already been done and halted uh, in many regards because of lack of benefit or cardiotoxicity. So although uh, this seems like a positive study at first glance, uh, we now have some better information from prospective methods that uh, suggest neither of these should really be employed for patients ill enough to be hospitalized at this time. And in fact, the uh, Novartis study, as well as the NIH study uh, that were looking at these drugs have all been halted uh, because of other study information already at hand. Uh, another target has always been to try to reduce the hyperinflammation scene that some patients experience in the later phases of infection. 
And many may recollect that the initial set of guidelines from China included a drug called tocilizumab, which is an anti-interleukin-6 uh, receptor blocker, in part because this drug already is FDA approved to prevent cytokine release syndrome in uh, patients who get CAR T-cell immunotherapy for their cancers. So this drug is similar, uh, cerilumab, which uh, targets IL-6 as an anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibody. Uh, this trial was halted, a phase three trial, which used two different dosing schemes because there was no sense that the trial would reach its primary or key secondary uh, endpoints, and this drug was used in mechanical ventilation. Serious events did not seem to differ much uh, compared to the placebo arm, and a separate trial using a different dosing scheme is still ongoing. But I think the comment here is the sense of really targeting uh, therapies at specific cytokines such as IL-6 may not be as helpful as sort of a broader anti-inflammatory approach, which have certainly might, uh, is the case with the dexamethasone arm of the recovery trial, which has been discussed and already out in preprint land. So there are other strategies being employed, some of which are more targeted, uh, some of them less. So we'll see exactly how well this works in this population. And also there's a sense that some of these might be better uh, employed just before people are ill enough to be mechanically ventilated. And if it's used very late after people have been ventilated for a number of days, you may be getting more into a lung injury phase, which is not so much uh, dependent on uh, ongoing inflammation. Lastly, I'd like to just talk about Operation Warp Speed a bit. This is the uh, federal government's uh, response to try to speed a number of maneuvers to help cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I'll say straight off, uh, I'm a bit confused despite trying to read about it from a number of sources. So I I'm hoping I'm not adding to it at all, but uh, this is sort of how I've looked at it because Operation Warp Speed is the executive branch's attempt through uh, the HHS agency to try to help speed along vaccine and other approaches to cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there, there is some overlap that, that makes it a bit confusing. For example, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Agency, known as BARDA, has already been very proactive on a number of aspects, including backing vaccines, and they have backed a number of vaccine manufacturers in early in early research and development phase. But what Operation Warp Speed is trying to do is advance what's called at-risk manufacturing. So this isn't just R&D, but this is to try to say, look, we, we have these vaccines, these medical interventions, and we wanna have as much capacity available the moment uh, trials suggest whether this is uh, a beneficial way to go. So uh, this is a, obviously a huge risk. I, I actually applaud that uh, there's this much investment because it will cut off months and months of delay uh, if we were just to wait for a trial and then decide to go ahead into manufacturing. The Operation Warp Speed is fairly opaque. We know three vaccines have already been backed. One 
uh, from AstraZeneca, which is adenovirus-based, another, uh, the Moderna one, which has been quite in the news, and is a nanolipid particle RNA-based uh, solution, and then Novavax, uh, which uses this pre-fusion protein and what they call a proprietary nanoparticle technology, as well as an immune adjuvant. Now, uh, this is from a press release. Uh, it also has the largest infusion of monies to date, $1.6 billion. And it's just interesting because their phase one and two trial uh, to look at preliminary information in humans uh, began in May and the data is not out. So it's really a, a big guesswork based on some very preclinical data in terms of backing. Uh, another one that was just announced is Regeneron, which is making a double monoclonal antibody cocktail that could serve as either a treatment or a prevention strategy until we have uh, good vaccines. Uh, Regeneron, interestingly, has made an antibody cocktail that has been successful at treating Ebola. So they have a track record here, and these uh, monoclonal antibodies um, are now backed for manufacturing and use uh, once those clinical trials are completed and judged to be successful. Now that's Operation Warp Speed, but I just wanted to point out that BARDA portfolio is really quite broad as well. Um, so the government's backing a lot of private efforts. That's both diagnostics, therapeutics, and others uh, across the country here. You'd have to scroll down on the left-hand side to see the whole list if you were to go to this webpage. Uh, but to give you an idea that they're covering a lot of areas, not just vaccines and diagnostics especially, will be important for any kind of uh, effective control of the pandemic, especially in the respiratory season, where hopefully we'll have point of care results back within 10 to 15 minutes instead of our, our current testing methodology, which often takes days. So uh, I would say the U.S. government responses have been very positive in the sense that this Operation Warp Speed is trying to position products to be available quickly without a lag if they're shown to be effective. But there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we don't know how these products are really being selected. If they are based on studies in humans, they're often very small, or, or they're even preclinical studies, as it appears with the Novavax backing. And, and interestingly, rather than tried and true approaches for vaccine development, uh, many of these are completely novel approaches, never been used before in humans. Uh, so uh, they're definitely on the higher risk side. So uh, Faith, that's, that's all I have this week and I'm happy to answer some questions. Okay, thank you, Dr. Allwater. We will now move to the listener Q&A section. Dr. Allwater, this is a first question. Some states, for example, California, have a lower mortality rate than other states. To what can this be attributed? Well, I think there's a conjecture. I'm not sure I have uh, answers. Certainly one aspect could be the uh, lower age uh, that people are acquiring uh, diseases as opposed to older populations and often in uh, nursing homes where they have many comorbidities at risk for uh, higher death rates. The, the other could boil down to other factors that are socioeconomic, uh, ability to access health care, or 
genetic. I think the genetic ones are very interesting. Many have heard about the fact that uh, the O blood type might be protective and, and the A blood type could position someone for doing worse with the disease. There's also a, a genetic segment on chromosome three, uh, which we're not quite sure about. Some people have called it the Neanderthal gene segment. This is a, a patch of DNA that has, in a number of studies, uh, seems to be a risk for severe COVID-19 disease. It also is a part of the human genome that does seem to trace to to Neanderthals, at least from uh, one study. So, you know, what it, why it's there and if that's somehow tracking in certain populations, we don't yet know. For example, we know the United Kingdom and Italy had very high death rates. Uh, as a history person, I could say, well, gosh, you know, the Romans invaded uh, the UK uh, a long time ago, and perhaps some of their genes are still there. And that does that make any sense? So we don't know exactly. So it's very interesting. And I think the whole concept of why some people don't get ill at all, some get mildly ill, some get severely ill and die, um, is clearly not just related to the virus, clearly not just related only to health risk factors. So we're, we're still waiting to see how this plays out on the immunologic end. Thank you. This is our next question. Are the saliva tests as accurate as the nasopharyngeal tests? Yeah, so if we're talking about molecular tests, um, even an oropharyngeal swab or a spit test has a lot of attraction uh, as opposed to having a swab sort of inserted uh, to the posterior nasopharynx. Uh, studies suggest that they're close. There's not yet been uh, uniformly well-validated tests. Uh, most are still under EUAs, so it's hard to, to judge. They probably are close enough. Uh, unfortunately, we know that initial tests can be negative depending on the stage of illness in a fair percentage of people. We don't know the exact number, but it can be anywhere from 20 to even 40 percent which might prompt need for second tests. So if someone has a suspicion I say you need to get a second test or consider that. A negative test does not buy you a pass to say that you're not infectious or that you're not going to have issues. A positive test you can trust though. Okay, and this is our last learner question. If nasal swab is not performed deep as instructed and only local nasal cavity, would that test be accurate? What are your thoughts on why so many tests are coming back negative and patients are showing symptoms? Yeah, so nasal swabs are done uh, by some, especially some of the home testing molecular tests, uh, use the nasal swab. Uh, again, they're probably close if they're done properly. Uh, I think most still feel comfortable doing the nasopharyngeal swab as being a, a bit higher in its accuracy, meaning sensitivity. Um, the test would be accurate if it's positive, but the negative tests, as in the prior answer, I would say if there is suspicion for COVID-19, it should probably prompt a, a second test. One aspect that I see the test probably being used improperly, uh, people are interpreting it the following situation. Let's say someone in your household is COVID-19 positive, right? Uh, you've been living with this person, and so two, two other household members go and get checked, and uh, they get checked a day after they find out the other person's COVID-19 uh, positive, and they're COVID-19 negative in their tests. They're like, oh, we don't have to quarantine. We don't have to really 
worry, but the problem is you could still have incubating virus. So I think many people are interpreting negative tests as being home free, and depending on the scenario, that may well not be the case. Okay, thank you. As a reminder to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Alwater. Uh, thank you, Faith, and I, I hope everyone continues to stay safe and well, and thanks so much for listening.